Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. This happens to be show number 18. So we're kind of moving along. Uh, we've pretty much passed the halfway point as far as the uh, class goes, as far as instruction and the class goes. Uh, for those of you that maybe are having uh, uh, nine-week classes, we're pretty much about halfway through the semester. Some of you maybe last week took your finals for that exam. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking about the information that's in, uh, I believe it's in Chapter 9. It's going to be talking about escrow. And so for the next two times, for show number 18 and show no number 19, we're going to be talking about escrows, which are a very important part of the real estate business. What I'm really going to be talking about is discussing the fact of, you know, why do we need an escrow? What's the purpose of it? How do you, how do you get started you know, when do, how do you go about opening the escrow? Whose responsibility is it? Who pays for it? Um, you know, if and uh, you know what kinds of steps are necessary when you're going through this escrow process that needs to be completed. And then just from there, just talking a little bit about title insurance and kind of we'll, which we'll be picking up the next time. So what I want to start out with now, and I'm going to be moving over here to my uh, old friendly document camera for a second, is that. Um, I think this starts out with a really good definition of what uh, real estate escrow is. It says it's an escrow is a processing by a neutral third party. In other words, it's not the buyer, it's not the seller, it's not the real estate agent or anybody else. It's an independent third party of all the paperwork, all the money that's involved in the sale and other real estate transaction. The purpose of the escrow is to assure that the appropriate parties perform the terms of the contract. And I think what we really kind of want to emphasize is the fact that the way I kind of like to look at it is to say, you know what, when you're working with a buyer and a seller, in a lot of cases those people have not necessarily met each other before. I mean, if you just take from a common sense standpoint and you say, you know, these buyers and sellers have probably not met before. The, the buyer might be coming from someplace out of town or even someplace within the Sacramento, El Dorado, or, or Placer County, or Yellow County area. But let's just suffice it to say that they haven't met each other. And yet they're going to be transferring or selling property between the two, and you're going to be transferring huge amounts or fairly large amounts of money. You know, in today's market, that might be three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 as a minimum. So it kind of stands to reason that I don't want to turn around and give a check to the seller in hopes that the seller will eventually give me you know, the title to the property in the condition that I want it. So what I realistically want to do to, in order to trust on both sides, I want to pick this third independent party who we both together, buyer and seller together, are going to submit a set of written instructions to them. And it starts, by the way, with that final accepted purchase offer. But it's submit to this escrow holder. And this escrow holder is going to make sure that we both perform all of the things that we have agreed to before the house is actually transferred or the title is transferred from, one, from the seller to the buyer and the funds or the new funds come from the buyer back to the seller. So that's what the purpose of this escrow uh, individual is or company. 
In Northern California, we typically are working where we have an escrow title slash title company. So we may hear of companies such as uh, First American Title. We uh, may have somebody called Financial Title, uh, Fidelity Title. There are a number of different companies here in town. I think somewhere in the neighborhood about 13 or 14. Who selects those companies or who, which company you use is completely up to the uh, buyer and the seller, whatever they negotiate. It's, it's not, you're not forced to use one company over the other. And also, too, who pays the fees is also negotiable. We'll talk about things that are customary. Customary means with the way we normally sort of do things, but in reality what ends up happening is, is that the buyer and the seller can negotiate who pays what fees and for how much of those fees are paid. So anyway, moving from there, I'm going to go ahead and move. Um, the next question is, is that some people will say, well, when is an escrow actually required? When do you supposed to be doing these, this thing called an escrow? And what this page is doing here is it's giving you some examples. It's giving you an example here of saying when, when it happens to be highly recommended and then when is it required by law. Highly recommended means it, it kind of makes common sense and it stands to reason that if you're dealing with somebody that you don't know that you are going to want to have this independent third party handle the transaction. Now there are certain times in which say a uh, for example a father may sell to a son some property or a mother to a daughter or parents to the child or child to the parents or deed it back and forth and that may very well be where you're going to go to maybe an, an attorney and they're going to draw up the document and you're just going to record the document because there's maybe no money transferring at all. And you're just going to record that maybe you're going to have a quick claim deed or you're going to just deed the property from one person to the other. People do this sometimes. And there'll be no escrow involved. But in most cases, it does make total common sense that if you're selling the property, that sale, any sales of real property, it's highly recommended that it should go through escrow. The second thing is loans. Again, when you go down to the bank and you get ready to borrow some money, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Viatech, Mortgage, whoever it happens to be, those companies are going to require, notice I said require, you to have an escrow. They're also going to require you to have something called title insurance. Now, I may, on the other hand, could turn around and decide to lend money to my brother, $10,000, $20,000, and record a deed of trust and maybe not have an escrow. So in that particular case, it's sort of you know, up to me, but if I'm going to borrow money from an institutional type lender or anybody else that I don't personally know, they're going to require some form of an escrow or they're going to require an escrow. The third thing is, is when we talk about exchanges. Now this is something that actually falls into the tax area, but suffice it to say that if you have a piece of income producing real estate, income producing, and when I say income producing, I mean you're not living there, it's not your residence. So we're talking about that you own a single family house that you do not live there but you rent out. Or that you own a duplex that you rent out or an apartment house or an office building or land or whatever. There is a way that you can defer the income tax. Now what I mean by that is that if you just sell the property, if you just sold this property, not your, again, not your primary residence but an investment you had, if you just sold it outright, the year that you sell it, the Internal Revenue Service is going to say, I want you to pay capital gains tax on the sale of that property. If you decide, though, that you want to stay in the real estate investment area, but you just want to get another kind of property, in other words, maybe you have a single family home and you decide, hey, I want to use that property as kind of like a down payment 
on a small apartment house, then in that case, if you do what we call an exchange, specifically they're called a tax-deferred exchange, you can do that and defer not having to pay the taxes now, defer them into the future. So you get the full gain instead of having to pay the IRS now. In the case of doing that, it says that it's highly recommended. I would say that if you're going to do any kind of tax-deferred exchange, because they can be fairly, they're, they're simple to do as long as you follow the rules, but there's a set of rules, and if you violate any of those rules, you can void the entire uh, thing of having to pay taxes. So you are going to want to have an escrow. But you don't have to, but it's kind of like you should. It would make common sense. On the other area, though, there's something over here called where we require an escrow. And there's three categories there. Number one is if you have uh, liquor license transfers. Liquor license means, for example, you're selling a bar and the liquor license goes with it. You're selling some kind of a store in which you're selling uh, alcoholic beverages that are sold and carried off premise. You ha those people that sell, though, that are in that business have to have a license by the alcoholic beverage control um, um, department, if you will, or organization. It's called ABC, and it's a state organization. They have to be licensed. So if you're transferring that ability, like a liquor store again, a 7-Eleven type store where any kind of alcoholic beverages, you're going to have to have an escrow. In fact, you're also going to want to make darn sure that the person that's buying the property can qualify for the license. Okay? Very important. Next thing is if you have any security sales, any impound accounts. So if you're selling anything uh, that happens to be in a real estate security, that has to happen. Or court order transferred probate sales. Probate sales means basically the person has died, the property's in probate, the probate has turned around and said, okay, we're going to go ahead and sell the house, use that money for the heirs, use it to take care of the kids, do something. You'll have an escrow for that. Okay, so those are the areas where you're going to find out. And if you are involved ever in, in probate sales, in fact, there are real estate agents that sometimes will be, as part of their practice, sort of focus on that because anytime you're dealing with anything like a probate or a foreclosure or anything like that, it's important because there's a lot of other laws the people that are going to be working with you are going to be people that are going to expect you to know or understand why things are taking as long as they are or what the process is. So you may find real estate agents that sort of specialize or one of their specialties are in that area because they need to know that. Okay. goes down here. It says, what, what, what are the things that you have to have that make a valid escrow? First thing is you have to have something called signed escrow instructions. And a lot of times these signed escrow instructions, by the way, are found in the joint escrow section of the residential purchase agreement. If you look at the residential purchase agreement, the purchase offer, it'll say it's a purchase offer and joint escrow instructions. So by the very nature of the buyer and the seller signing that, when the buyer makes the offer and the seller accepts it, accepts that offer, by that very nature, that's the start of the escrow process, the start of the escrow instructions, okay? But they both, they all have to be signed, okay? Uh, okay, uh, next thing, a neutral party, uh, which is an escrow company acting as a dual agent for both the buyer and the seller, so then that, you have to have that. And then the third is conditional delivery of funds and documents after all the conditions are met. This one right here, if you remember back when I was talking about the purchase offer, I said that there were things like contingencies. Contingencies are things like, listen, the buyer is not going to go through and buy the property unless the termite report is done. That's a contingency. The buyer has to get financing. That's a contingency. 
The buyer has to look at a preliminary uh, title report. That's a contingency. So the escrow officer is going to make sure that they are not going to deliver money or documents or anything to anybody until all of those contingencies have been met. Okay, that's part of the job, right? So we're going to move on from there. Um, I want to cover this part right here, which is talking about the sequence of events, okay? Um, just to talk about here, this sometimes if we say things several different ways, it helps to make sense. It talks about the four functions of escrows. It says to provide a custodian funds and documents who can deliver them concurrently. This just means that's part of one of the jobs. The escrow holder holds the funds, holds the money, holds the, uh, holds the documents in their possession. Okay? They provide a clearinghouse for payments of liens. In other words, they do not release any funds or transfer any titles until they make sure that the existing loans have been paid off. Any liens that were due on the property, like mechanics liens, have been paid off, tax liens. They make sure all that's done before anything's transferred. They compute all the prorations. Remember, uh, if you just take two examples, uh, you may find out that, for example, a buyer may all go ahead and secure funding. And, uh, for example, they may decide that uh, the seller may allow them to move in uh, before they actually close escrow where they're going to rent from them. Okay, Or you may have some interest that has to be paid. Or you may have where the buyer is going to take over some existing fire insurance policy. I talked about that before, that in some situations, depending upon where properties are located, you may very well find out that it's difficult to get fire insurance. I think specifically if you're in an area where there's a lot of shake roofs, a lot of trees, a lot of brush around, you're going to find some companies that will say, I don't even do insurance in that area, forget about it. So you may find out there might be an assumption or take over some policies. So anyway, the bottom line is, is if we do this, we're going to have to do something called prorations. We're going to have to figure out how much does the seller have to pay, how much does the buyer have to pay based on the close of escrow. That's why the close of escrow that day is so important. Also, uh, if you have rental property, remember tenants pay rent in the beginning of the month, and they pay for the entire month. So if you close escrow at the 15th of the month, what may very well end up happening is, is that some of, half of that rent goes to the seller and half of it goes to the buyer. So those are prorations that the title insurance is going to be making. And they're going to prepare all the documents. In other words, they're going to prepare the grant deed, the deeds of trust, uh, deeds, any documents that have to be recorded, they're going to prepare all of those things, okay? So what's the, what's the process? Okay, this is kind of good that you go over with a client. Uh, remember that whenever your clients are buying and selling property, they're only going to probably, even if they've done it before, they've maybe only done it, if people buy and sell maybe every five years, six, seven years uh, at the most, unless they have the, have the kind of job that they're moving all the time. But there's a series of events that they're going to be going through, and you need to explain this to clients. Basically, what's going to happen is, number one, after you caught, what's going to happen is, is that you're going to open this escrow, and you can open it in a number of ways. One of the ways today, you can open it up electronically. You could actually literally turn around and send, uh, go on to one of the websites for the title companies and open up the escrow and give the, give the escrow company some preliminary information. You should also, at the same time, be probably faxing a copy of all those documents you have, like the, the purchase offer or maybe even taking it by the escrow officer. Okay? But they're going to open up this escrow and they're going to assign you a number, some kind of a number. 
okay? And that number is going to differ between companies. It's just like a tracking number. It would be like a student number, like you guys have. Well, not necessarily a student number. It would be more like a, it uh, wouldn't be a student number as much as it would be like a class number. You know, like this class has a class number, a five-digit number, so the, uh, you know, that nobody else is, let's say, using. That would be the escrow number, okay? After that, they're going to, as soon as they hang the phone up, that escrow officer is going to call their title plant, and they're going to order something called the preliminary title search. And they're going to request this title search and request a report. And that report is going to show things like who owns the property. Currently, who is entitled on the property? Uh, what are the property taxes? Are they current or not current? Are there any liens against the property? Are there any encumbrances? That's what they're going to be looking for. Any judgments? Is the IRS trying to attach the property? Okay, things like that. So that's that title, title search. They're also going to do something called order a lender's demand. They're going to contact the existing lender and they're going to say, excuse me, according to uh, Pat Hogarty's getting, looking at selling a house, here's the address. You have the loan, you know, the loan on it. Uh, can you please send me something called the demand, which is going to show how much money Pat currently owes on the property. Also, that demand is going to show whether or not uh, Pat has to pay any play, uh, prepayment penalties or anything else, okay? And if it has one, it'll do it on every loan that's open. So if you have one loan, it'll be one dem demand. If it's two, it'll be two demands, depending upon how many loans. They're then going to contact the brand new lender for the buyer, and they're going to say, listen, can you send us whatever paperwork it is that you want your client to sign for the new loan, okay? And then the new lender is going to send that documentation to the escrow company. They're going to complete all the conditions in depositing of funds. That means that they're going to make sure that, hey, listen, was the termite inspection ordered? Was it completed? Was the work finished? Was all the things that the buyer and the seller agreed to completed? By the way, is there any additional money that the buyer has said that they're going to deposit? It's not uncommon, for example, for the buyer to make a purchase offer and put a very small down payment down. And, uh, and the seller to agree to that. They'll say, okay, I'll, I'll accept that. But as soon as you, you, I remove those contingencies, meaning as soon as I get the, the termite work done or I get uh, the roof repair done or something, I want you, buyer, to come in with more money to show that you have, that you're um, a solid buyer. Okay, so there could be more funds coming in. Some of those funds may also be coming from the close of another escrow. So it's not uncommon for somebody that's buying their second, third, or fourth house to maybe be selling the other house, and those funds need to be transferred from that escrow to this escrow. And one of the things that's very important, too, you tell your clients, make sure they understand that the best way to transfer funds is electronically. Personal checks don't work, and, uh, and in a lot of cases, sometimes even cashier's checks will have a delay on them. But the transfer, the electronic transfer of funds is important. So your clients are going to have to be able to know what their escrow number is. You're going to have to be able to, uh, uh, provi be able to provide that to the person that's handling the sale of the other escrow to get the funds up here. Okay. Then they're going to do something called adjustments and prorations. Those are the things like any kind of adjustments, like, hey, you know what, we, we are, we, uh, you know, I know we initially said that escrow fees were going to be $3,000, but they're not really $3,000, they're $2,998. So in other words, some kind of adjustments or prorations, up or down. 
They're going to transfer any existing fire policies to create new ones. This is a very big, important one and one that you want to get your client working on as soon as they decide to make the offer. And that is, is make sure that if they're not going to take over the existing fire policy or maybe it can't be taken over, but your client, your buyer needs to contact their insurance agent right away, give them the address of the property, and let them start working on shopping for and getting the fire insurance lined up. Because I'm here to tell you that the lender, no lender, I don't care who it is, is going to take and fund any kind of purchase unless they make sure that the property is insured. And that means fire insurance, and if it's in a floodplain, it means flood insurance. It is not going to happen. That will hold up the entire deal, so you need to make sure that all that's taken care of before you ever even think about getting close to that date. Um, next thing is, is that uh, once all this is done, they're going to make sure your clients are going to come in. They're going to sign all the documents. Usually that's going to happen to probably about two, three days before the close of escrow, maybe four days. Uh, they're going to need to bring in stuff like they're going to need to have a picture ID. Uh, if they don't have a driver's license, they're probably going to need a passport. They're going to need something to show who they are. They're going to uh, come in, sign all the documents. They're going to be notarized, and uh, they're going to be most likely notarized by the escrow officer at the time of the close. I highly recommend, by the way, that uh, any real estate agent worth their salt will show up for the close of escrow. Absolutely critical. In fact, the reason why we go through a lot of this is so that you get familiar with the idea that you need to know how this works so that you can explain it to your clients. Remember, you're the one that has been working with your clients for the last month, two months, three months. You understand how your clients operate. You understand if you've got an engineer-type client who wants to get the calculator out and you need to reserve probably about three hours for the close of escrow because he's going to want to crunch all the numbers. Or you've got somebody that if you try to explain something complicated, their eyes are going to frost over. You need to do that so, because the escrow officer is only going to meet them for the first time. So you're going to kind of need to know that you need to be there so you can clear up anything because you're the closest thing that they have to who they trust. Okay, The escrow officer, they're meeting for the first time. So it's important that you know what's going on. Once they sign everything, what's going to happen the day that they get ready to record the property, they're going to do one final quick check title search to see if there's anything else that's been recorded against the property. And then what they're going to do is they're going to record it. They're going to stand there essentially like at a clock or a stamper. They're going to record it. It's going to show a date and a time that it's been recorded at. Once it's recorded, then what's going to happen is they'll contact, and most title companies have what they call recorders, people down there at the county recorder's office that do that. And then once it's been recorded, they'll call back to the escrow officer and say, hey, the deal's recorded. At that point, the escrow officer then can finish off the close of escrow by doing several different things. This is where we record and issue the title insurance policy. Right after they know, then they can start dispersing funds. In other words, passing money around. You can go by and pick up your garage door opener, your keys to the house, the gate clicker. Uh, you can pick up money that's coming back to you. Maybe you've got some kind of a refund coming back or whatever. And then you'll have an escrow statement is sent to each party. Okay. That's also the part that you can get the HUD-1 statement, which is later, later on in the chapter they talk about. Sometimes lenders today, when you get ready to get, if you're buying another house, they're going to want to say, listen, before we release funds, we want to make sure you actually did sell your old house. We want to make sure we're not going to have you making payments on both houses. 
So most of the time, lenders are going to either require a signed lease agreement to show that you have somebody renting it, or they're going to require a HUD-1 statement that shows that you've actually closed the transaction. Okay? So that takes care of that. They do talk a little bit here and about why that, an escrow, that a real estate broker can conduct escrows, but they can only conduct them for, um, it says, uh, a broker can handle escrows for a fee only if the broker is acting as a real estate agent or principal in the transaction. Okay. Okay, we talked about, okay, the escrow and the follow-through here already. Okay. What I wanted to do is to move on to this. Uh, this page right here is to make you aware of the fact that there's a difference in the customs, not laws, but customs, between how Northern California does business and Southern California does business. And when I was years ago with the title insurance company back in the late uh, 70s and early 80s, it used to be funny because we would go to Southern California and talk to the people, the branch managers, people that did the same job I did. And we would talk about doing things like getting customers or getting clients or generating business. And up here in Northern California, our business, our business as an escrow company or a title insurance company usually comes from referrals from uh, real estate agents and brokers and lenders. So in other words, that's who we market to, who, who we talk to, who we try to drum up business with. Those are the people. We don't pick the phone up and call. I, I would say that you probably have never gotten a phone call from a title insurance company in your entire life. People don't even know what a title insurance company does. But the way that a title insurance company markets its services is that they contact real estate agents and brokers in the community they participate very heavily in the functions that they do. Like I used to be on their education committee. I would give workshops. I mean, that's how you do your business, how you get business, how you get referrals. In fact, we used to go by real estate offices and go by and stop by and say hello and shake their hands and, you know, and pass out my card and flyers and stuff like that, okay? In Southern California, the business comes from escrow companies. So in other words, the customer down there is that you have these escrow companies and then the escrow company picks whatever title company they want to work with. So in other words, if you're a title insurance company or you're marketing your services not to the broker, you're marketing them to the escrow company. Then the escrow company's marketing their services to the broker. Okay, so it's a difference in the way you do business. Just like in some other states, you will go and you'll talk about uh, maybe getting ready to close your real estate transaction. You won't talk about going to an escrow company. You'll talk about going to the attorney's office. There are states in which you, the attorneys handle the escrow. So it varies from place to place. Uh, the other thing is, too, is they talk about how the escrow instructions are taken care of. Uh, basically, things have changed over the, over the years. At one time... At one time, a long time ago, when I was initially in the business, what would happen is, is that we used to take all of our instructions verbally over the phone or in person, but they were verbally. We would never take things in writing. We would always, we would never have a copy of the purchase agreement, never, never allowed. We would never have it in our file folder. The reason why is we never wanted to be, at that time, the thinking was being in a position where we were interpreting something, legally interpreting something. Anymore, that whole scenario has changed. Nowadays, what's happened is you get this purchase agreement from the real estate agent, 
and you put that in your file folder, and that's the start of your escrow instruction. So it's a little bit different than the way it used to be. But I just wanted to distinguish between these different things that they're talking about here. They say, when, uh, when, are, uh, when are signed escrows instructions delivered? And so it says, customarily in Southern California, the bilateral, and bilateral, by the way, means both, both sides. Escrow instructions are signed by both the buyer and the seller just after the start of the escrow. Okay? We sometimes would call those upfront instructions. Okay? Just terms so you hear about it. Customarily in Northern California, you have unilateral instructions. Escrow instructions are given to the escrow officer uh, and just before the close of escrow. So in other words, it's when you actually go to the escrow office, okay, up front or, you know, so they do business differently, just so that you're aware of that, okay. Next thing is, is it says who performs the escrow services, Okay, escrow services in Southern California are traditionally performed by independent escrow companies, corporations, or financial institutions. That's who performs them in Southern California. In Northern California, escrow services in Northern California are traditionally performed by title insurance companies. So essentially, what has happened, or traditionally years ago, is that most title insurance companies had offices in the downtown area. And they were usually close to the county recorder's office because that's who they had to deal with. And what would happen is, is all the title insurance companies have something called a title plant. You hear the term title plant. Now, when I was in the business, you could go down there and they had all kinds of records. This is before we had computers the way we understand them today. And you would go down there, and they had microfiche and paper copies of, of documents. And, I mean, we had people that were title searchers. And what they would do is they would get the order and they would go in and go through all this documentation trying to establish it. And what it was is it was a complete duplication of the county recorder's office. And we subscribed to a service that provided that information on the way of a microfiche. Okay? But they were downtown. So that's the title plant. What you see in the outlying areas, when you drive down the street and you see something like a... Uh, a sign that says on the outside of a shopping center says financial title company or an office building that says that. That normally is housing usually escrow officers. That's who's usually working there as escrow officers. Now, some of those escrow officers just might be doing something. They may just take care of things like resale. In other words, people that are just buying and selling regular houses. They may actually be also in that office providing what we call subdivision sales. So in other words, they may have a couple escrow officers in there that just handle one or two of the very large builders because the builders produce a lot of escrows on a monthly basis. So it depends, but it's usually escrow officers that you'll see there, not title officers. Okay. Uh, who pays the fees? And remember, this is customary. Escrow service fees in Southern California are usually split 50-50 between the buyer and the seller. Escrow service fees in Northern California are usually paid for by the buyer, but again, that's negotiable. That is not law. That is negotiable. In fact, you'll find that that can be different based on what county you're in. Um, who traditionally pays for the title insurance? It says customarily in Southern California, the seller pays the California land title insurance policy, the standard policy. Uh, in Northern California, uh, the buyer pays for the California land title policy. And down here, this is the basic policy. And then we also have, remember, we have the other policy, which we call the Alta. And in both the northern and south, the buyers pay for the coverage of the standard, uh, 
title insurance that, that protects the lender's interest. So if you have a, what we call a lender's policy, um, you know, the buyer is the one getting the loan. And because the buyer is the one that's getting the loan, the buyer is the one that pays that fee. Okay? But again, remember, please remember that all of this is negotiable. Okay? It is negotiable. It is not set in concrete. Uh, one of the things that they do show you in the book here on this particular page that I thought was interesting, and this, is the, uh, this may not even show up on the camera. I can't tell. This is the escrow holder. Uh, this is just uh, escrow holder acknowledges receipt of a copy of this agreement. This is where the, in other words, all the way on the bottom of your uh, purchase order offer, all the way down the bottom, you'll see this statement. And this is where the escrow holder acknowledges that they've received that document. That's what that one statement means. You know, hey, I got the copy of that document. The next thing that they co cover pretty extensively here is what kinds of things, and I think this is a pretty good checklist, what kinds of things does the escrow officer keep track of? And one of the things that you kind of want to think of in a real estate transaction is that you want to have a list of items that you're going to go through and make what I call disposition on. In other words, you're going to look at the item and say, does this apply to this transaction? If it does, have I done it? Yes or no? Okay? And the concept behind that, and it's kind of like, I, I like that kind of a thought because I fly airplanes and kind of like we use that checklist analogy you know we we you know before we get ready to take off we go through a checklist because it becomes very difficult to get airborne and realize you forgot to put gas in the plane you know so we kind of you know use these things called checklists we actually do that and um, what's really important about this is this checklist should do something it should give you a list of things and it should jog your memory and you should have it organized in or they have it organized in such a way that they're making sure that they're covering all the bases. That they don't get to the last day and say, uh-oh, I made a mistake, or I forgot something. And you should have something, by the way, and you're, and you're going to find out, depending upon what brokerage you work for, a lot of brokers may have uh, different file systems, but they're going to have some way that they want you to have a master file folder that's going to have all the things that you've done on that transaction so that you can go back and make sure that you're not missing anything. But anyway, I'm going to go through a couple of the things here so that you know what this checklist is talking about here. Uh, notice up here it says it's a checklist. It says contracts, contra contract, TR, tracks, and disclosure statements. So this is talking about what legal contracts are there in their possession. And also, remember, there are disclosure statements that they're going to have to have. This is going to talk about whether it's the buyer or the seller and then the broker's initials here. So, for example, this one right here is an agency, a seller and buyer disclosure. Both, both should be on file. This is talking about what they, who's the agency relationship with. Okay? This is the listing with the termite and title clauses stated on page 2. So this is the listing agreement here. And this is talking about the things like the termite inspections and stuff like that. And they're giving you a certain page on that contract, on that listing agreement, where you would find that language. The next thing is something called the transfer disclosure, okay? And these little letters, these dark letters that are right here, are sort of like a little bit of an abbreviation for the document that don't necessarily make a lot of sense. If you go back into that 
one chapter that talked about additional documents you use in escrow you would, or you use in a real estate transactions where you see these codes maybe. Um, you have something here like, for example, do you have a smoke detector and a water heater disclosure? The smoke detector is where the smoke detector is in the house and it functions and it works correctly. And the second one is that the water heater is installed and it's braced. That's a disclosure statement that you have to have. Um, this is the one, uh, let me see, um, this is the one about lead-based paint. This is the one about the earthquake booklet, okay, in other words, that they got that. Um, this is the one about zone disclosures. There's different types, appropriate and sign, this is natural hazard, mold disclosure, database, airport, etc. whatever other disclosures you may have. Um, let me see if there's some others on here that I could use. Uh, order, signed up mail outs, okay. This is sellers and buyers estimated costs, where you've estimated what you think it's going to take to close the, uh, you know, for the transaction to go through, so they know what you actually estimated as far as title, escrow fees, transfer fees, whatever. Um, this is the residential purchase agreement, all pages initialed and signed. This, this has to be on file. Uh, pre-qualification lender, uh, pre-qualification letter and copy check. What that means is the letter that came in that said that you were pre-qualified for the loan, okay, or that you were qualified for the loan because remember that's a contingency, okay. Compensation to the uh, uh, cooperating broker, appraisal, uh, physical inspection or waiver, remember that has to do with whether or not you're going to get a home inspector. And if you don't get a home inspector, you're going to have to sign a waiver stating that you do not want a home inspector to protect, protect, the, protect yourself. Termite inspection and the clearance. In other words, the inspection's been done and the work has been completed and it's been cleared. Um, exchange forms, if you have that. Any requests for repairs for the buyers. Remember, you could have had where that home inspection resulted in the fact in which they found certain types of defects and where the buyer says, you know, by the way, I want you to fix these items. You know, I want you to fix this light that's not functioning. I want you to fix this garage door that's not working. I want you to correct, correct the water faucet. Uh, we found the dishwasher wasn't correctly installed. Whatever the problem is, these are the requests that the buyer has made for the seller to take care of it. Okay. Uh, let me see, removal of any cancellation or con uh, removal of contingencies or cancellation. What we mean by removal of contingencies, and I remember hearing, hearing one of the real estate brokers that's got a radio show on Sundays talk about that. You want to have, once that contingency's been removed, you want to have it in writing because you don't want to have that thing raise its ugly head, you know, uh, you know, two or three weeks later and say, well, we never said we never said that, you know, that we accepted that. You want to have it in writing, that it's removed. You know, that if it's a contingency that the buyer has to take care of, that the, that the seller says, yes, it's been removed and signs off, that yes, they have. Or if they've canceled it. They may, may very well had a contingency in there and said, you know what, you know, the house looks like it's in pretty good order. Yeah, forget about it. I'm not going to have them do that contingency. I'm not going to have, let's just cancel that part of it, okay? You need to have that. Uh, this is a home warranty waiver, and I would highly recommend, by the way, this is another thing right here that there was an article in the paper on Sunday. 
You want to make sure that clients are presented with the doggone home warranty booklet long enough ahead of time that they can read it and understand what's going on. Because it becomes very frustrating. And, and, and the thing that I saw in the article is where people thought that, hey, if I buy this house and if anything goes wrong with the house, I'm covered. Okay? Well, that's not necessarily true. Okay? It's not necessarily true. It's like if you have a warranty on a car. People will think, oh, wow, I bought a car, I bought a brand new car, and everything is covered. Well, there's certain things on a warranty that are not covered. For example, if your brakes wear out because of use, that's not covered. If your clutch wears out because of use, that's not covered. Okay? If your fan belts wear out or your belts wear out because of use, that's not covered. But if the transmission falls on the ground out of the car, that's covered. Okay? It's the same thing with these home warranties. Clients need to have the time to sit down and make sure they understand what is covered, what is not, what their deductible is, how long a period of time stuff is covered for. Very, very important. You don't want them to be in a position that, especially if they're your buyers, that you know they, they, they have a couple things go wrong, they call the home warranty company, and nothing gets corrected, nothing gets fixed because the policy is sort of weak. It really doesn't do anything. You know, It's kind of like a Swiss cheese type policy. It, I mean, it doesn't really cover much of anything. So you need to have your clients have enough time to go through that, make sure they understand. If you have to call the warranty rep, and they do have warranty reps to explain what is covered and give them some scenarios, is very important. Because a lot of times what will happen is you get ready to close an escrow, and it's at the close of escrow you get this document called the warranty policy that the seller is agreeing to pay for, for the buyer, but it doesn't cover much. And you don't know that until all of a sudden something goes wrong and you call them up and you say, oh, well, that, you know, it would have been nice. I would have chosen it. So the buyer could have said, it would have been nice if we could have chosen another company. Or maybe I, I could have paid a little bit more and gotten better coverage. Very important that they have some time to do that. This is another thing right here called a walkthrough uh, or waiver. Walkthrough is right near the close of escrow, probably about two or three days before the close of escrow, somewhere in that neighborhood your buyer is going to want to and should walk through the house. And, I, and, and normally this walkthrough, I'm saying normally, this walkthrough is usually done after the seller has moved their stuff out so that the buyer feels comfortable, sort of like, hey, this is my house now, and that there's not things that are obscuring their inspection, such as beds, bookcases, and all kinds of other things. This is something where you, who are representing the buyer, takes the buyer over there. You walk from room to room. It's the last chance that they have to write something up and say, oh, I didn't realize it was a hole in the wall, or I didn't realize that something was wrong, or let me flush the toilet for the tenth time. It's that kind of a thing that you're looking for. So either they have the right to do that or they waive it. That needs to be in the file. Okay. Um, down below here it says check closing cost, have escrow, give estimate, proceed two days prior to the close of escrow. Hopefully if you've done your work right and the escrow officer's done their work, there is no surprises here. This should be just a no-brainer. I mean, if anything, um, the client should be just looking at getting some money back from the close of escrow, not coming up with some money. Okay. Um, this is just something here, remove the lockbox and have the sign taken down. Uh, report the sale to the association, otherwise uh, you're going to be fined by the board if you don't do that. And then send mail outs to the neighborhood and follow up. This is probably more or less like a marketing thing. You know, oh, by the way, the house that's on uh, 2795 uh, uh, Main Street in Sacramento, California just sold. You know, uh, 
I got that, you know, it might be a piece, a postcard, something like that, that you're just announcing that it's sold. Very, very important that whenever you uh, remember you, you have any success, if you've sold a house, you want to let everybody know that you sold it and that you're, you, this, you do this well. So this is an opportune time when you sell the house for you to actually let the neighbors know in the neighborhood the house is sold. Same thing conversely when you put list the house for sale. It's a good way to let people know because people will ask me, like, when do I send stuff out? When do I send flyers out? When do I talk to the neighbors? And there's a lot of opportunities to do that to meet clients. One of them is when you list the house for sale. Sending something out and saying, oh, by the way, listen, the house down the street, 2795 uh, Main Street. Hey, that's for sale. It's a beautiful house. It has three bedroom, two baths. Stop by. We're having an open house this weekend. A really good time for you to meet the clients. And then when you sell it, letting the neighborhood know that you sold it so that they go, hmm, that, that person's done a good job. Maybe I'll use them to sell my house or use them to help me buy another house. Very important. It's a good way for you to meet clients. Because remember, most people want to work with somebody that's going to be able to achieve their objectives. Okay. Um, I'm trying to see whatever else we have in here. Um, okay. Next question we get sometimes is how do we how do we actually terminate an escrow? In other words, under what conditions do we terminate it? Okay, and there are basically three different ways we do things. This is like the old contract thing, you know. In other words, three different ways. The first way is that we complete the escrow, and what we mean by completing the escrow, we mean that the buyer and the seller love each other, everybody is happy. The appraisal came in. The termite work was done. Uh, you're the agent. You've maybe bought the clients a, a plant and a, and a bottle of champagne. They've sent you a thank you card. Everybody's happy. Everybody is happy. That's one way we close the escrow. Uh, if you've done everything correctly and you've worked out all the details, uh, this is the way a lot of most real estate transactions end. I mean, they end where everybody's kind of really happy. The second way is where you have something called a mutual agreement. And in a mutual agreement, that means that what's, what's happened is that something has come up, either on the buyer's side or on the seller's side, in which they're not going to proceed with the sale of the property. Now, sometimes this can be for something that's part of a contingency. Maybe, for example, the buyer turned around and said, you know what? Uh, I'm, I, I want to have a week to find financing. And the buyer goes out and looks to, you know, and has put in their purchase offer that, you know, that financing up to 8%, 30-year loan, uh, something like that. They've gone out and they've shopped and they found out that, for example, that uh, maybe based on their credit rating, maybe based on how much they owe currently right now, maybe they can't, maybe they can't swing a loan. That's not possible. Okay, so that's one reason. So they, they, it's a contingency that can't be met, and then you're, both sides are going to mutually agree to cancel the escrow. It could be where you got something like a, uh, an appraisal done, and as a result of the appraisal, you found out that the price, purchase price that you were going to pay for the house, you know, especially now, could quite conceivably be where you were going to pay $400,000, and the appraiser goes out, you know, because you thought that the property was a hot property, and the appraiser comes back and says it's not worth four hundred; it's only worth three three hundred eighty-five thousand. So you're going to end up canceling for that reason, or it could be because of the fact that you read the preliminary title report and you found out there was an easement across the front yard or the backyard that was going to prevent you from doing something. 
there could go on and on. Termite work. You could find out that there was termite or mold or something wrong with the property. So where you both say, yes, that is part of our agreement. And based on that agreement, the buyer or the seller has total right to cancel. We're both mutually going to give the escrow holder a set of instructions to say, cancel the escrow and give our money back. And if those are the circumstances, normally what will happen is there's no... Uh, there's no brokerage commission that's paid or anything else because of the fact that it's because the contract, something in the contract couldn't be met. The other way that I could say um, that that's here uh, would be the fact that it can be even go as far as maybe the buyer or the seller decides that they cannot fulfill the transaction, not because they can't fulfill the agreement, as, uh, you know, not because of a contingency, but because they decided at the last minute they're not going to either buy or they're going to sell. So, for example, the seller could turn around and say, you know what, I put my house up for sale. I really and truly thought I was going to be able to sell the house and move because I had a job, uh, job offer. Come to find out the company I had the offer from is going out of business. They filed bankruptcy. They're not going to hire me. So, therefore, I have no need to move. Okay, and you can find that on both sides where the buyer or the seller, the buyer decides not, they're not able to buy or the seller decides they're not able to sell. Can they be forced or pushed into finishing the agreement? Yes, they can. Okay, but in a lot of cases, hopefully some common sense comes into it. And they say, yes, I understand what's going on. I understand that the buyer can't fulfill the agreement because of something beyond their control. And that can be a mutual agreement. That can end up where there are some sort of compensation that has to be paid for to the agent for their effort because they've done everything that they've been required to do. Or it can be, for example, some other companies may start generating, you know, the banks have been, you know, did their work. There's, there's fee that, fees that have been paid, appraisal fees. All those things are going to have costs that have to be taken care of. So there can be costs associated with that if you just back out of the transaction. The last one is called something called a court interpleader. And a court interpleader just basically means where you're going to the court and asking the court and saying, listen, we can't get these people to do whatever we need. I'm trying to see if there's, a, um, if there's anything in here that explains that. I don't see anything. But basically what it is is where you go to the court and have the court make a decision to, close, to cancel the escrow, close the escrow, whatever, because the, uh, for whatever reason, the parties, you can't get a mutual agreement. Okay. Uh, a couple other things that they mention here is who selects the escrow company or the title company in that case. Uh, remember, title insurance companies are, are regulated by the state insurance commissioner, John Garamendi's office. Very, very tight restrictions covering things such as cutbacks or, uh, cutbacks or kickbacks or any additional fees or rewards or however you want to look at for finding people. Uh, very strict, you know, where, uh, you, know, where uh, you cannot... Uh, be paid money by a title company for referrals. You can't do that. It's against the, the law as set by the insurance commissioner. So basically all they're doing here is um, the, when you are the agent, uh, let me back up here for a minute. First of all, who selects the title insurance company? The person that selects the title insurance company is typically, usually, whatever's customary. So Normally, if you're in a certain part, say you're in Sacramento, if customarily the seller picks the title in, in escrow company, that's usually what you do. You can go to another county where customarily the buyer picks them. 
Uh, sometimes his philosophy is like, listen, if I'm going to pay for this title insurance policy and I'm the buyer and I'm the one that's going to get with the house, I want to be the one that's going to be able to select the title insurance company. So, again, it's another one of those things that whatever is customary or it can be something that uh, is negotiated between the two. Typically, though, who selects the company is usually if the buyer is allowed to select the company, they turn around to their real estate agent because most buyers and sellers, unless they've been in the business for a while or been bought and sold property, usually don't even know what a title or an escrow company really does. So they defer that. They go to you as the agent. They say, Who, what is, what's an escrow company? Or I think I understand what an escrow company is. Who do you recommend? And what they're looking for is they're looking from you for some advice. And typically the advice that you may very well give them is something like, listen, I use Judy. Uh, or I'm, uh, the experience that I've had is, is that I traditionally have done my transactions with somebody by the name of Judy who works for financial title. She's very efficient. She's very effective. She's very thorough. I found her to be very professional in the way that she does business. Uh, I've done a lot of transactions with her. I feel very comfortable with her. Uh, and you may even give, offer them a couple different companies and say, I also use Mary Ann. Mary Ann works over at First American. And let the buyer, or the buyer, whoever the client is, choose. But usually the client is looking to you for advice. Okay? And uh, so it's up to you. But you are not allowed to receive a kickback of any kind for referring people to those, peop uh, to those people. Okay? Um, one thing they do point out here is that the death of somebody does not cancel the escrow. It is binding on the heirs of the estate because prior agreement or to a contract. So if somebody is in escrow and they die, okay, that does not cancel the escrow. Okay, very important. Um, I think that that's it on that page. I'm not sure whether we've uh, – I think we did the last time we talked about in the previous chapter. I think we talked about finance, okay? But financing is a very, very important part of the escrow. And extremely – remember, as many times as I need to say this, most people are not going to be able to buy a house. They're not independently wealthy. They're not going to be able to buy a house unless they have some kind of financing provided for them. So the financing people become very, very, very important and an integral part of the entire process. In other words, getting the loan, getting the people qualified to get the loan, get, to get the new loans is very, very important, extremely important, that they're qualified as quickly as possible, that the, the contingencies to get them approved for a new loan are taken care of, that all their documents get to the uh, lender as quickly as possible. You don't want anything holding up the loan at all. Also remember too, getting the payoffs. Now traditionally, usually, you're going to find out that if people have like a first loan, you know, it might be something like the Bank of America or Wells Fargo Bank or through Viatech, a mortgage company, something like that, a well-known lender, well-known. In other words, they have a staff of people that you can call and say, excuse me, Pat's getting ready to sell his house. I need to have a demand. I need to have a payoff. But also remember that you may very well, especially if you're working with somebody and you're helping them and you're listing the property for sale, and you know that they ha maybe have a second loan, 
And that second loan might be something where the person they bought it from was like a seller carryback or some kind of special financing. Uh, you may very well find out that you are going to have to spend some effort and time of getting a hold of that individual. In other words, people may sell the house, sell a carryback financing. Maybe they're getting payments sent from the, from the person that owns it now to some bank. Those people might be someplace in Europe on vacation permanently. <laughs> you know, so you may have to take some effort to get a hold of those people to say, listen, we're getting ready to pay this loan off. We need to know how much you want, what the loan is. You, get, you have to get all that stuff straight. Also remember, too, that in many cases, many, many cases, especially with second loans that have been equity lines of credit, and those are used predominantly in two areas. One is where somebody's gotten a loan to do some kind of home improvement or they've gotten a loan to some way to help them qualify to get the property in the first place. Remember, those loans usually have some kind of prepayment penalty. Very important that you know what that is because the client may be faced with having to come up with that money or have the new loan cover those prepayment penalties. So you need to know what that is and any other kind of special requirements that the lender may have. Very important. Um, and uh, we're getting pretty close to the end. I want to tell you where we're going to pick up the next time. We're going to pick up on page uh, 345, but what I want to do the next time is I'm going to go through this escrow example. And the escrow example is going to be starting over here on this page. And what we want to do in this is that we want to be able to spend some time going over this example. So that, And I'd like to have you read this ahead of time so that when we go over it, it kind of makes some sense because you as the real estate agent, remember, even so you're going to have an escrow officer, you as the real estate agent in a lot of cases may be the one that has to sit there with your client and explain this stuff to them. You know, the traditional way is, is that normally, you know, the people go to the escrow officer's office and the escrow officer sits down and explains these documents, but again, the escrow officer may not realize that your client is the kind of person that needs to spend a tremendous amount of time going over all the details. Or that your client needs to have a little bit, you know, a couple analogies to understand what's going on. Or maybe your client doesn't even care. Just show me where to sign and I'll sign the paperwork, okay? So uh, you may find that you are the one that has to explain this to your clients. And this is also, we'll go through this example, but I really also feel that anytime you're starting to practice in real estate, that you're going to, you should be going down to the escrow officer and spending some time going through this, at least with your first few, few transactions, so you understand what's going on, so that you look like you're well-informed when your clients come in. You don't want to look like you have no idea what they're talking about. It looks kind of goofy that way. So anyway, we're going to pick up on that page the next time, which will be page 346, and we'll carry on from there. With that, have a nice day, and we'll see you back here again for show number 19.